It's nice to see you all here on this uh, late November evening. It's cool here in Northern Arizona in Flagstaff where I live at 7,000 feet. Um, so even though people think of Arizona as all warm and deserty, it's, it's uh, snows up here. <laughs> We've already had some snow this year, but uh, none on the ground at the moment. I live here at the base of the highest mountain in the state. It's known, it's a sacred mountain to the native folks around here. It's called Dokoslid by the Dine people, the Navajo folks. It's the sacred mountain of the West. And in their tradition, it was pinned to the earth with a sunbeam by the holy people. It's also known as Nuvatukyovi, when Hopi people and it brings, it's the home of the Kachinas, spirit beings who bring uh, rain and blessings to their, their home. And I can see it from my backyard. And uh, it's a blessing for me in many ways to live in this part of the world. <clears throat> I was thinking just as we were meditating, uh, those who were here for that. You know, I was just struck by how amazing it is to be alive, to have a body and a mind. We take that for granted so much of the time. We kind of don't, don't always reflect on the fact that it's actually kind of fantastic. And I was just noticing of the wear of the breath and the body sitting and whatever. And just how miraculous it is to have a life. And yeah, it's, a, it's not something to um, overlook. <laughs> the fact that we have this body and mind and then those of us who are lucky enough to encounter something like a meditative path and a practice like this one that can lead us to understanding and a deep kind of contentment, freedom of mind, peace of mind, to have that as a potential refuge in our lives, which is, is not there for a lot of people. And uh, to maybe release some of the, the confusion and suffering and struggle that uh, really characterizes the lives of so many. And we see so much evidence of this uh, in the news and, and other things these days. So we can see our path, this path in meditation in, in a number of ways. You know, we can see it as this ongoing process of insight into the characteristics of, of what it is to be human and in characteristics of, of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and uh, uncontrollability, or we can see it as opening to an understanding of, of what some teachers call our Buddha nature, or um, our realization of, of uh, you know, what we really are beneath our conditioned habits of mind. We could talk about it in all kinds of ways, but there's a way that uh, I think is always useful, which has to do with uh, an understanding of, of what are called the ten paramis. In Sanskrit, the word is paramita. 
translated often as perfections. And it's said that these are qualities in this tradition, there are 10 of them listed that the Buddha is said to have developed over countless lifetimes. There's a question in one of the texts from the Buddha's, one of his chief disciples, the Venerable Sariputta, who asked the question, how many qualities are there issuing in Buddhahood? And the Buddha answered, there are Sariputta, 10 qualities issuing in Buddhahood. What are the 10? Giving, Sariputta, is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, equanimity. These are the 10 qualities issuing in Buddhahood. So those are the 10 paramis. And we can see these as a description of our path, path of practice. We can also see them as a description of the, we say the quality of the awakened mind and heart. If these practice, if these qualities are perfected, brought to full development, then they they characterize how we live in the world. Uh, they're they're natural expression uh, when the mind is no longer ruled by the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And I think this way of looking at things is I love it. I think it's it's powerful and useful because it has this. It expands the breadth of what we call practice um, extremely widely. I think that's a critical thing for us to do, is to actually expand the breadth of what we think of as practice, because we can get focused down very narrowly on, say, the formal meditative practices. But this has a lot of things that are developed through all of parts of our lives. And I think that's really important. And my teachers in, because I have a strong connection to the Asian tradition and practiced a lot and lived in robes in, in Burma and I've spent a lot of time in India and Thailand. And, and my teachers uh, often spoke of things in terms of the, the development and ripening of paramis. And I think this has to do with the view that permeates a lot of those cultures that sees practice as developing over lifetimes and we don't have to have a, a belief in in multiple lifetimes you can see this uh, over the course of a single lifetime of course but what if this entire life is for you is about developing uh, perseverance energy in the form of perseverance or or patience or kindness or truthfulness what if that, I mean, if the Buddha spent countless lifetimes on each one of them, is that all right with you? If this lifetime is just about developing and cultivating patience or whatever, one of these others. You know, and sometimes we meet people who seem to have one or more of these qualities just naturally highly developed. You know, my, my, in, in the Asian things, they'd say, oh, that, that their parami, that parami is very, very developed or ripe, you know, have the ability to concentrate the mind or seem to just be loving and kind or very patient just by their nature. My mother was a, an incredible example of energy, among others. She was kind of 
highly evolved being in some ways, but she had so much energy. She was, you know, she, she was, she grew up in a time where, where she was the one who took care of the house for the most part. And she was a really good cook. She did all the cooking. She, she loved to garden. She grew flowers and vegetables. And she was a, a highly talented craftsperson. She made most of the dishes that we used in the house she made in her pottery studio. And she was part of a cooperative pottery, not crafts gallery. It wasn't just pottery. It was all kinds of crafts. And she, she did all this volunteer work and she made most of her own clothes. And I can go on and on. She just, this is just how my mother was. That's just how she, she taught nursery school. She, she did everything. Raised four kids, had time for her friends. And, you know, she was amazing. And she wasn't hyper. She wasn't compulsive. She just was that way. She just had that energy. But I think this way of looking at practice is powerful because it it can cut through our tendency to be judging and assessing our, our practice in terms of some arbitrary criteria of what we think meditation should look or feel like. And, you know, and then judging our experience, judging ourselves based on our perception of our experience. And we overlook all of these good qualities that we that we're developing just because we're willing to keep at it to begin again all of the times that we have to do that. So in this listing of the paramis, the first two are dana and sila, which are giving and ethical conduct, living carefully. And these are, are sometimes there's a, there's a way that the, another way the practice is sometimes talked about is as the trainings, three trainings of dana, sila, bhavana, dana, giving, sila, ethical conduct, living a careful life, and bhavana is mental cultivation, which is all the meditative practices that one might engage in, developing the mind, mental cultivation, that word bhavana means cultivation. Um, one of my colleagues and the teacher of mine, Kamala Masters, her teacher was also Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, um, Ranindraji. He called these three the three pillars of the Dhamma. And he said that not only is the whole path contained within this framework, but that um, all three of them are needed, that they, the path does not come to fulfillment without all three of these being developed. And the um, we, we tend to see Donna and Sila as kind of, we get focused on the bhavana part um, here in the West. We tend to see uh, Donna and Sila as kind of preliminary or foundational practices. And there's a, a reality that that is, that is true on some levels, but, but they're constantly being, um, I think if we take this path on for the long haul and really take it to depth, we'll see that, that our relationship to all three of these and to Donna and Sila is constantly being refined and developed and um, explored. It's woven into the fabric of our practice at every step of the way. And, and it's really, I think, important to, to look at things this way because we can get focused uh, in a different way. 
But in my view, we could make Donna and Sila giving and relationship to living ethically as the central focus. We can make that the our main focus of our practice. And if we brought the intention to really watch the mind and the heart, we would find that the whole path would flow forth from that. Uh, that bhavana would inevitably be there because you cannot live carefully. You cannot practice uh, giving and all of the, the things that are woven into and, and related to that without developing the mind to watch the mind. But tonight, because I decided I would talk on the subject of giving and I called this talk, Jen, uh, I don't know what I called it, something about it being the practice of freedom. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on that. And there's one teaching where the Buddha recommended that one practice giving, so this this parami of dana, which is literally giving, that one give with the, the thought that this is an adornment for the mind and a support for the mind. Because it, give, because it ennobles the mind and beautifies the mind. I think that's, that's a, well, I love the images here. That by giving, we're adorning. That means beautifying, um, adding, yeah, beauty, adding beauty, inner beauty to the mind and the heart. And we're supporting and ennobling the mind, the heart. And these, this reflecting on these words brings to mind um, two words that are related to giving that, that I want to talk to. So dana that we're most familiar with. But there's a Pali word, chaga. And if you're interested in Pali, it's spelled C-A-G-A, chaga. And chaga is, is um, refers to a quality of the mind and the heart. It's an inner quality, an inner state. And the word dana literally means giving. So that's the act of, of offering something. That is dana. Chaga is the quality of mind. So we could see that chaga is a mind that is inclined towards generosity, that it is the mind that gives rise to generous actions. So it's, it's an internal state where there's a feeling of wanting to give, of feeling generous, you could say. And if we develop and cultivate that, chaga, then there's this then dana flows forth from that. So you could say that through cultivating uh, chaga, generosity internally, then, then dana follows on. But, but also the process can happen the other way around, which I think is really uh, something I've noticed in my own uh, mind and heart a lot over many, many years now. Because we don't always give because there's a generous feeling there. We might, we might, the giving might precede the generosity in the heart and the mind. You know, we, um, we can give in order to cultivate, we can practice dana in order to cultivate jaga. <laughs> you know, so it, it can work that way. We, it's like we give ourselves a bit of a nudge towards it. We, we incline the, the mind and the heart 
you know, we, we see this kind of thing in all sorts of ways. It's like, you know, we might not feel like getting some exercise, but maybe we get some exercise and then we feel, we feel the value of that and it, and it informs, you know, then, then we like train the mind towards, or you could think of other examples that might be more uh, real for you, but we can find that by giving, it actually leads to the arising of this quality of inner, inner internal uh, generosity. And to me, this relates to what we might call feelings of inner abundance, a kind of inner abundance. Chaga maybe has a relationship, this quality of generosity arising, a feeling of wanting to practice or offer something. Um, maybe there's, a, there's some sense of, of an internal abundance of, of having something, a feeling one has something or enough to give. Because I think often, and maybe this is especially true in Western cultures, you know, this sense that by giving will be sort of diminished or, or will be, will have less, will be, be lessened by that. But, but actually through these practices, we find the opposite is true. And that by giving, we're actually enriched. You know, the literally, that word enriched, <laughs> becoming rich. <laughs> you know, we can see what is, what is richness, a sense of inner richness, maybe. So practicing generosity can actually support and develop this sense of an inner abundance. And in this way, as I was talking earlier, chaga, dana can, giving can support the arising of chaga, um, generosity of spirit of heart there's these words from uh, the uh, from lao tzu that speak to this very directly the sage never tries to store things up the more they do for others the more they have the more they give to others the greater their abundance and this points to that same sense that Sometimes chaga is there and dana follows. Sometimes dana leads to chaga, leads to giving, leads to generous feelings. And these feelings of inner abundance, they're not, they don't have necessarily any relationship to some objective criteria in terms of external or obvious material wealth. You know, there's, there can be people who have a lot of obvious material wealth, but but cling to their possessions and and may maybe feel a sense of inner poverty, and that can lead to this sense of never having enough, constantly trying to get more of whatever it is. And often those who are very poor economically can have the most generosity of heart, maybe because they know what it's like to not have anything, to have so little. I've seen so much of this in in places in Asia where I've spent a lot of time where people are very, very poor and have such generous spirit, generous spirit. One example of this, I have had an affiliation with a particular meditation center there, Shamyin Yang. And, and there was a there was a devastating cyclone, maybe some of you might remember in 2007, I believe it was Cyclone Nargis that hit hit uh, Burma and, and other parts of that part of Asia. And 
and um, you know, hundreds, thousands of people were killed. A massive flooding in the lower delta part of the where the Irrawaddy River flows into the sea, and and there were some nuns. Um, I'm part of a, a small group. Narayan is actually part of it. Uh, the group. Those of you who know Narayan, uh, at CIMC. Um, we have a group called Meta in Action, and and we support mostly small nunneries and some schools, and uh, you know, really in very poor areas there. And we met. There were some nuns we met we'd known who had had found a really a little place to be, and they were really looking forward to after many years of service and uh, uh, working doing stuff in the in the nunnery when the, where they had been living, they were going to. Uh, undertake a period of practice, and the cyclone hit, and someone from their village, the the one of the monks at the monastery where they had ordained, sent them ten or fifteen orphan little girls whose families had whose parents had been killed, and they they took them in, and you know these were little girls, so they weren't taking them in just for a little while; they were taking them in for the next ten or fifteen years or something, and. And so they let go of their own plans because what are they going to do? They had to take care of these kids. And so they just, this generosity of heart, there was no question in their minds, no matter how they might have felt about it, that they would be generous in this way. We can see giving, and if we do it as, take it on as a practice, which is, is something that we, we do when we think of our practice in terms of the paramis, I think, is we we make it a practice in the same way that we make meditation a practice. It's something we're doing with um, this intention, with awareness. So if we bring together awareness and with clear intention, then there's a lot to explore there. You know, we we give not only because it's just a, a, a an offering, a benevolent offering out of kindness and connection. But we also give with the understanding that, that we're developing our own mind and heart and that it's a support for us. It's a beautification for the mind and a support for the mind and adornment, ennobling the mind. That it supports the growth of wholesome inner states like chaga. That it's a direct support for our liberation. So we, we take it on in that way. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. said, giving has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the cultivation of generosity directly debilitates greed and hate while facilitating that pliancy of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. So when we practice giving, if we do it as a practice and really watch the mind and the heart, we'll see over time at least that the mind becomes less rigid and fixated and tight. There's more space, spaciousness, more pliancy, flexibility, more relaxation, and all of these are great aids to our meditation. We also notice that giving can erode some of our self-cherishing uh, habits of mind, where we tend to place ourselves ahead of others in a way you could say. We cultivate care, concern, interconnectedness, 
We directly touch the lives of others. And so it strengthens metta and the Brahma Viharas in this way. Lately, I've been thinking of, and I think this came from talking to Sharon Salzberg, who's kind of a metta specialist, but using thinking of, of this word metta as connection, and we translate it as loving kindness. I prefer goodwill. But if you think of it in terms of connection, that's that has to be there. That that's goodwill will, will arises out of a quality, a sense of connection that we 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 see ourselves as our lives as interwoven with others, as connected to others. And Donna, I think, supports this, this quality of connection. There's a famous quotation in one of the, the collections where the Buddha is, is supposed to have said, if beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their very last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. I, I've heard this or, or versions of this quotation a lot, and it, it can sound kind of like a, a cliche or something, but there's something profound in that. One would share part of their last morsel of food if there were someone to receive it. If beings knew as I know, they would not, not even eat without having given. You know, the Buddha saying that. As I mentioned, I've spent a lot of time uh, living, traveling, practicing in South and Southeast Asia, and Burma especially, but also in Thailand, and a lot of time visiting the Buddhist sites in India and other places, many other places. And, and so I, I can't really think about or talk about Donna without reflecting on my time in these places because so much of my understanding has come from that. Uh, I wanna offer a disclaimer here. I, Burma is a mess right now. And there's a lot of stuff going on there that's really disturbing, especially to, to those of us who have a connection to that place. And so it's not, it's not a perfect place. <laughs> it seems more troubled than almost anywhere in the world at times. And there's just as much greed, hatred, and delusion alive and thriving there as anywhere else. But there's there's also so much beauty, you know. And 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 so my stories are are based on my personal connections there and are not meant to overlook any of the problems or any of any of the things that are troubling that place. But it's a place where I really, I think my understanding of the practice of generosity and giving really grew there through my time living as a monk and also just being in a, in a place where these, it's, the practice is woven into the culture. Um, and maybe it was a lot from being on the receiving end of, of giving, being the one who's being given to as a monk that happened every day. And, you know, generosity exists in the West. And I think, you know, people who track the statistics of, of, of giving in times of need, natural disasters, and, and times when people are in need, you know, the 
People in this country in the United States are incredibly generous. Give more than anywhere else in the world, I think. So much good and humanitarian aid groups and, and um, you know, how many foundations, how many requests for money from really good places do you all get? I get so many, you know, and support a few of them, a handful. It's not that they're necessarily the best ones. They're the ones that I have a heart connection to. Volunteerism and all these things, and it does so much good, but it often takes this form of philanthropy and volunteering and good deeds, and it, it does a lot of good, but sometimes it also tends to reinforce a sense of, of self and other. One gives because it's a good thing to do or because we're helping those who are less fortunate or who are in need, and it tends to... To, to sort of, I am giving to you over there somewhere, it tends to be, uh, reinforce some of that feeling of separation of self and other, I think. But sometimes um, it's, it's held differently in some cultures, at least at times, in some places. And it fosters connection, it counters this feeling of separation and disconnection. Um, and there's this joy and delight and mutuality and, and and yeah, deep dignity in, in giving and receiving. I'll tell more stories about that perhaps in a moment. But, but one thing I need to talk about here, especially in, in thinking of, of uh, yeah, Buddhism and Buddhist practice and also uh, Asian cultures is the fact that there's one example of wise giving from the text. It says one gives with a clear understanding that generous actions will bring beneficial results in the future. And this is a connection to this Pali word of punya, which we translate as merit. And it's really central to Buddhism. It's throughout the suttas. The Buddha is always talking about merit. But I think it's misunderstood in, in the West a lot. Certainly I misunderstood it when I first heard about it which I think goes back to 1995 when I was taking care of a group of, of bhikkhus, of monks who were spending some time in California. This was just prior to the founding of the Abayagiri Monastery in the Thai forest tradition, if you've heard of that place in Northern California. And I, I spent months setting up a place and then taking care, cooking and offering a lot of my time and energy over many months to make this this retreat happened. And it was during that tip time that the, the property was offered to create this monastery. And, and people would say to me, oh, there's such great, such so much good merit. You're getting so much merit from, from this. And, and I didn't want, I didn't like it. I didn't want anything to do with it because I thought it was this idea that I was doing it because I thought I was getting something, you know, it, it undercut my the generosity of my offering, I thought, but that wasn't it at all. It was acknowledging the goodness of it. It's, it's a really understanding cause and effect and the teachings on Kama and the fact that, that skillful, wholesome, life-affirming actions yield good results. And they inform not only the present moment, they, they fill our heart in this moment, but they extend into the future. And there's this understanding of it. I see it like planting seeds. You plant the seeds for our future happiness and freedom through our wholesome, skillful actions in meditation and in giving and developing the paramis. And so it doesn't undercut 
or the generosity. It, it doesn't, it's not like we're, you know, filling up some celestial bank account or something like that. That was my idea. But it's actually acknowledging the power and the goodness and, and taking joy and delight in that. And I think it's, it's really important that we do this. And it's really good to look and see how do, do we really acknowledge the, the beauty of, of our wholesome actions? Or do we let that goodness into our hearts? The Buddha said we should do this. Another example following on from this of wise giving is, is one gives with the aim of enhancing one's efforts, of supporting one's movement towards enlightenment, towards freedom, towards full liberation. And one of my friends was really struck by this uh, at a monastery where I was uh, managing a retreat in Burma for foreign non-Burmese yogis to come and practice with a Burmese teacher and Western teachers together. And the, one of my, my beloved teachers, Sayada Ulakana, he insisted that if she was going to offer, she was going to offer the meal. She was paying the cost of the, the meal for everyone at the monastery that one day. And he said that she had to dedicate it with this, her aspiration to realize Nibbana, to realize full awakening. In the words, he made her repeat these words. You do that anywhere, anytime you give. And those words mean, may this merit of mine support the realizing of the path and its fruit. And, um, you know, it was shocking to her to even imagine that she might, she'd never really thought of enlightenment as a possibility, let alone that she might dedicate an offering to that in support of that. It was really a, it was a big thing for her to, to let that into her mind at all. I mentioned the Metta in Action project and, um, you know, the things that we, we do there in support of the nunneries. And, and just how I've been so struck by the generosity of those who are so poor, even. And there's the tradition of the teachings, you know, in this tradition, they're offered freely. There, there's not a charge. There's no charge to spend time in monasteries there. And this idea of meal dana, which we do at retreats here so often. It's it's come on. It, it's it's a it's come on during my <laughs> the last thirty years. We didn't have a meal Donna board at IMS when I first went there, but now it's there and it fills up on these long. I just finished teaching a six week retreat there, plus two weeks at the forest refuge after that, and it's just so lovely to see these dedications of the meals and uh, this offering there. You know, in Burma. Sometimes whole families or, or even extended families or, or from a small village, you know, a lot of people will come and they'll, they'll prepare the food and they'll actually be there and offer it. And then they'll sit and watch you eat. You have an audience while you're eating. And, you know, most of us are not used to having people sitting, watching us eat. But they want to see, see that, you know, but you, you get, you start to just, delight in there because they're so happy there's so much joy <clears throat> you know and so much honoring of those who who undertake the practice and who would come that far from what they see as you know such an easy 
life to live simply and and so there's this honoring of that and there were times when i was living as a monk where i was so struck by that you know that was on the receiving end you know when i went out on alms round at one period of most of a year where i was i was just eating one meal a day from food that was put into my bowl and i began that period of time i, I would go on alms round because that's that's what you do when you're a monk and that means walking through a village or wherever you are the town with a bowl you can't ask for anything you can stand in the road if someone sees you and they want to put something in there they can't um you know, very clear rules of decorum how one behaves one never asks for anything and you go barefoot um always and you so you have the robes and the bowl because that's what you get that's what you own when you live that life those are your possessions nothing more and um and so i was living i decided if i got more than just rice that day i would start eating just one meal a day from that food and i got rice and one little thin slice of papaya and um, so then i started just eating all this food once a day and some days i would get only rice and some days i would get huge amounts of food and i always you know i i kept what i thought i could eat and i gave the rest into the monastery kitchen and um there was so just you know sometimes people just plopped some rice in your bowl because that's what you do but sometimes people would give with this with such care <laughs> And you know when you when you go there people come out and they are down on their hands and knees in the dirt in the path bowing to you and that's not so easy to to receive and you realize of course they're not bowing to they were never bowing to me they were bowing to those robes that i was wearing and to this their this was an expression of their faith in the triple gem of buddha dhamma song it was not personal but still to feel worthy of receiving that gesture of respect and then receiving some rice from someone who maybe all they had to eat was rice and they gave me some of it there was one woman she lived in this tiny little bamboo shack by herself she would give me these little things that she had one day she just gave me a flower that's what she had but she gave it with such care and there's a there's a phrase that is part of the reflection on the qualities of the sangha especially maybe of the ordained sangha it says anuttarang punyaketam lokasa that means they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world punya actually for great merit and goodness to arise in the world loka means world and i thought oh this is part of what that might mean they give occasion for people to practice um dana in this way and the goodness that arises from that there was one young woman who on that time that alms round i would go by this house and and when i first was there she would she was she was thin and she was did not look healthy i could tell she was ill she would make her way out to the gate um on the property and would offer me something every day and and then over time she was being helped out because she grew weaker and that at a certain time this was over months 
I was invited into the yard, which I, you can, if you're invited, you can go inside someone's yard onto their property. And I would go up closer to the house where she would be sitting in a chair because she was too weak to stand to offer. And so I would kneel down and, and normally one would never make an offering from a sitting posture. It would be seen as not respectful, but she was ill. And so I would kneel down so that I was low enough to receive the offering into my bowl. And um, <clears throat> and then one day when I went by, she wasn't there. And it's interesting how much um, this still touches my heart to recall this story that happened now so long ago. And she had passed away. But up until the time when she did not even have the strength to, to offer anything at all, she, she wanted to do that as part of her day. She made that offering. And it was so, um, you know, such a, so much learning for me to be, to feel, how do I receive that? That level of, how do I honor that level of, of faith and connection and an appreciation of the, the goodness of this. So this this is another thing to look at when we, we give and we receive, you know, what are our attitudes around receiving? How do we receive? You know, do we receive with some fake fake humility, but thanks, or do we reject the offering thanks, but no thanks? You know, do we not give people the opportunity to give? You know, it's our it's our duty to receive offerings and receive them well, I think, especially in certain circumstances. And then there's this sense of mutuality, and it's actually offering the if you receive well, you're offering that as a gift to those who give. That's that's a gift itself. Receiving carefully and well is a gift. It's said that giving brings happiness in three times before when we think of giving during the act of giving, and afterwards when we reflect on, on our offering. And the Buddha recommended that we, as I said, that we reflect on the goodness. And there's one discourse where he's talking to a, a lay person, a householder whose name was Mahanama, which actually means great name. Maha means great, Nama is um, mind, <laughs> name, mentality. It's, it's, the, it's the root of the word name in, in English. I get some of our words from Sanskrit. That's interesting. Furthermore, Mahanama, there's the case where you recollect your own generosity in this way. It is a gain, a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, possessiveness freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. And then he goes on to say that when one um, recollects this goodness, one's mind and heart are uplifted and, and are, are in line, in alignment with the Dhamma. And he talks about it, he says, when one gains a sense of the goal and a sense of Dhamma, then joy arises in this, in terms of this. And when there, when one who is joyful, rapture arises, and one who is rapturous, the body becomes calm. 
In one whose body is calmed, there is ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated and so on. This is, this is the beginning of the, the uh, unfolding of what's called transcendent dependent origination. It's, it's a series of steps leading to awakening through the development of joy and calm and so forth. And he says, Mahanama, you should develop the recollection of generosity. This means think about the fact that you have been generous while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. Pretty much all the time, whatever going on, bring that into your mind. You know, it's so easy to see the ways we aren't good enough. We should bring our goodness to mind. It, it balances our view. Helps us to see things more clearly. So we don't, we're not pretending, you know, yeah, we, there's, there's, you know, things to be worked on here. But to bring this to mind. So earlier I spoke about, I'm going to try to wrap this up. We could talk on and on about this subject because it's dear to my heart. And I feel like so much of my learning in meditation and in practice and following this path is related to, to this, this practice of giving. But then there's this, this sense I spoke about earlier of, of inner wealth or inner abundance. And I feel like all of this can lead to us to the, this beautiful quality of heart of gratitude, which maybe Thanksgiving, hopefully maybe there's some relationship to that. But tomorrow is this holiday of Thanksgiving, giving thanks. And the sense of gratitude and this idea that one might count one's blessings, actually notice one's blessing. Notice as I began this talk, the blessing that we actually have a breath entering and leaving our body. Do we even notice that? There's a breath coming in right now. It's been our companion. We, we're not gonna last long without that. It's, it's, our, it's been with us since we took our first one and it's gonna be there till that last exhalation. Do we have actually gratitude for it? A friend of mine has a practice with with a friend of hers where they they i think they get together maybe by phone or text or whatever different ways they're living in different parts of the world and they 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 each recollect and list five things each day that they're grateful for it's cool you know if you start to think about it like i'm grateful right now that i have a home and that there's heat that works in in this place because it's going to get down to 12 or 10 degrees tonight or whatever. And there's clean water coming out of the taps in my home that I can drink. That, you know, there are so many people who, they don't have a tap, let alone any clean water. They're just drinking whatever they can get. And some of it's not clean at all. Or the opportunity to hear the Dhamma, the opportunity to practice meditation. How many people might love that and do not have that in their lives? Okay, last couple of words. It's said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. 
So that's the greatest gift. And in my mind, there is some really deeply true thing because that is a gift of, of a place of true refuge. It's the gift of a possibility for freedom and happiness and deep, 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 real, true happiness. Happiness that's independent of changing conditions. And this is the hap- this is the gift we all offer through our practice. And I think it's important that we hold it this way, that our practice of giving of everything we do, when we do it with awareness, with clear intention in the mind and the heart, that we are planting the seeds of our own happiness, our future happiness, and we're planting those seeds in the world, that it's spreading out. And I think that if we can bring to mind this in a way where we actually dedicate our practice, may my practice be a gift, a gift to all beings. You know, I have a shrine when I teach, I bow, and I bring to mind these words, something like this. May my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. Bring those words into my heart. Whether or not I feel like it's real or not, I just, I do that. I plant that seed in my heart. May it be this way. May my practice be a gift. May I be with this difficult feeling in my mind, in my body, on behalf of those who lack the capacity to do that, who, who can't, can't do that. May my practice be a gift. And if we bring attention, awareness, intention, Two practices like giving will realize that they are not only supporting the movement towards freedom, but in and of themselves, in that moment right there, they are the practice of freedom. The mind and the heart can open to freedom right in the moment, perhaps temporary, but real. Because in that moment, there is purification of the mind. The mind is not under the sway of greed, hatred, and aversion. Because it isn't always. And this is, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop there. But um, if we approach anything in our life, really, but maybe particularly because I'm talking about giving and generosity this evening, with, with the right attitude and with intention and clarity, with awareness, It is a practice of freedom, and it is a support and a direct leading onwards towards the ultimate freedom of this path. So I'll end it there. And thank you all for coming this evening. Thank you for your practice. And um, yeah, have a great day of Thanksgiving. And if it arises in your mind and heart, do a little giving of thanks in whatever way is personal for you. Okay, I wish you all every possible blessing in your lives and uh, look forward to seeing some of you somewhere sometime on the Dhamma path. Hello, Dhamma Ferrers, and uh, happy Thanksgiving, whatever that might hold for you. Wish you a good night. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.